and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I got a, you know, everybody who come on the show, I call him a friend, but I got a, a friend on the show who is a better writer than I, who is brilliant <laughs> in his own right, none other than Donovan Ramsey. What's going on, my brother? How you doing, Bakari? It's great to be here. It's great to be here. What part of the world are you in today? I'm in the Bay Area. I'm here um, actually recording the, the audio book. So. Tell me about your, that audio book process. I hated it. I felt like it it's was torture. It's very difficult. People don't understand. I forgot how to read halfway through. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no. The thing for me is that I'm I'm reading and I'm like, man, why did I write this like this? Like some of these words don't go together. I would never actually say this. Exactly. But, but you know, when you're writing, you're like in like a whole different bag. So um, yeah, no, it was, it was. I used words when I was writing that I never actually liked. <laughs> right. I, I was stuttering and oh, you know, and then I had a, my throat was hurting halfway. Yeah. Just, it was a, it was a whole thing, but I'm, I'm glad you're actually reading it. Look, we start each one of our episodes uh, the same as we ask our guests to walk us through the arc of their careers. And you've been through some of the country's top outlets, New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, Wall Street Journal, Ebony, Essence, you name it. You've also been on the staff at LA Times News One and the Grio. How did you get to all of those different doors uh, in this line of work for Morehouse College? Yeah, I would say um, a lot of hard work, a lot of prayers, <laughs> a lot of just like blessings from uh, from 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 God and really the like help of um, some like key people, you know, that anytime you are uh, uh, really just a black American trying to make a way within industry. Um, you know, you need uh, allies and um, and like co-conspirators to kind of help your career. And I've had more of those than I think I probably deserve. Um, you know, as you said, I, I graduated from Morehouse. Morehouse for me was always say the best decision. The, the first really good decision that I made for myself that I decided to go to Morehouse because I was like, I don't know. There's something about, you know, the men that this organization, that this institution produces that, you know, aligns with, you know, the kind of person that I want to be and the kind of work that I want to do. And, um, you know, you know that Morehouse uh, really instills in, in its graduates a sense of uh, excellence and I would say uh, social consciousness that, um, you know, whatever you do, you have to do well and you have to uh, do it in a way that is meaningful, um, especially as it relates to, you know, the the condition for black folks in America. So uh, Morehouse kind of set me off on that path. And um, I thought that I was going to be a lawyer at first. Um, and I saw what you guys do and was like, nah, <laughs> it was a little too difficult. I think maybe. Um, for me, it was it was it was uh, it just didn't fit my temperament law that I wanted to go into some type of like, um, um, you know, sort of like public work that helped people. And I thought that maybe law and politics was the way to go. But you really have to be um, flexible and patient and, um, uh, you know, willing to to kind of see things out over a long period of time. And that's not me. <laughs> like I just want to get to it, and I and I, and I realized that my um, gifts were more um, in writing and that speaking truth to power part of public work. So um, so that set me on a path towards journalism, and um, and of course helped by uh, 
Dr. David Wall Rice at Morehouse, who was my mentor and um, had before he was a psychologist, um, journalism training and worked as a journalist at like Vibe magazine. So from there it was Columbia and then just working, man, working jobs and, you know, trying to find opportunities that that fit um, the really ambitious stories that I wanted to tell. Natural segue into it took you right to crack, took you right. to crack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk about your new book. When crack was king first, the title, where did it come from? And tell tell readers when was crack king? Some people just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, in a way, you know, the the book took me back to to where I started, which is growing up, um, you know, very poor, you know, raised by a young single mother in Columbus, Ohio, in a neighborhood that was really hard hit by the crack epidemic and having really um, my like earliest memories being of that period in the 80s and 90s when, um, you know, urban America was really just um, under siege by both uh, addiction, I would say the violence that that surrounded the drug trade, but also the police and policy response to those things. So, um, so that was the the environment that I grew up in, and it stuck with me. So, um, you know, throughout my career, if I've I've always reported about Black America, I've always thought that that our stories really get to the heart of the American story. And, uh, you know, for that reason, have never wanted to report about anything else. And this seemed to me like um, like a really important period in time that changed so much in terms of how um, society felt about urban America, felt about people of color, um, the way that our criminal justice system operated, um, the 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 rhetoric within our politics. And it hadn't been really taken seriously yet that nobody had written an authoritative account of the way that the crack epidemic um, uh, rose and fell across the country and and its impact. Um, So that's the book that I set out to write. And the title um, is a play on um, on on King Cotton, a term that was used, um, you know, during the. uh, period of of enslavement in this country where um, cotton was such an important commodity, right? That it was considered king. Um, that that it was the 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 kind of commodity that could, you know, launch a country. Um, and what I wanted to do with the title is talk about there was a period in urban America when crack was king when it was something that could change people's fortunes and futures. And it was something that could really upend um, the way that society operated. So that's how I got the title. A couple of specific questions for you real quick. Talk about the impact of crack on black men in particular. Yeah. Um, You know, that's a really, um, it's a deep question, right? Because when I think about crack, both through my research and also through just my experience growing up with, you know, relatives that were both addicted and who, who sold drugs and friends that also went that way. Um, I realized that um, that the crack epidemic was like our gold rush. It was like our prohibition. It was a period where young men 
who were otherwise shut out of industry. I mean, you're talking about in the uh, 70s and 80s, uh, really high unemployment for um, for black folks in particular and like black youth especially. Um, and they had an opportunity to become millionaires, unprecedented. And, um, you know, I wasn't of age at that period, but I did have to ask myself, you know, growing up the way that I did, if I was 18, 19, you know, years old and someone said to me that you can go from, um, you know, hunger to being able to, you know, pay your mom's rent, buy a car, <laughs> you know, buy some new shoes, um, you know, would you not do it? Um, so I think that what crack represented for a lot of young black men, especially was the promise of something more, mm -hmm. um, the promise for really just basic middle-class life, right? Like most guys didn't get to become kingpins and to be rich, but they got to have things that they needed. Um, but it was also a trick bag, right? Because there was so much violence associated with it, that the drug trade was competitive and, um, uh, and really brutal. And, you know, there also was uh, a mass incarceration um, reaction that came to the crack epidemic. So it was um, this sort of really attractive thing that ultimately was very devastating for young Black men. How did you source this book? One of the things you said was in your research. I mean, are you in it cooking, cooking coat? Got <laughs> to make it bounce back and bubble up. <laughs> there was a period after I got my book advance where I said, I don't know. You know I probably <laughs> could flip this a couple of times. But uh, no, I uh, in 2018, um, you know, after selling the book, I, uh, I spent a year traveling to the 10 hardest hit cities. So I was in. Um, Newark. I was in New York. I was in Baltimore. I was in Oakland, Los Angeles, Chicago, um, Detroit, um, Philly, Atlanta. Sorry, y'all. Some places are like slipping my mind. Um, uh, also, New Orleans. And um, I didn't hear Appalachia in there. I didn't hear like Des Moines or. <laughs> you know, well, well, you know what? So so here's one of the things that was really interesting about um, about the places that I went to is that, well, one, let me say uh, Roland G. Fryer, who's a, a researcher at Harvard, did some really uh, uh, important um, uh, um research into the crack epidemic and its impact. So he created an index that measured the many different ways that crack impacted communities. So we're talking about things like cocaine-related arrests, cocaine-related um, uh, deaths, um, and then you know a, a bunch of other measures. And from that, he created an index and he identified the cities that were hardest hit. So that index was my guide for where to go. And one of the things that was really interesting was these these themes emerged that we were looking at. Hmm, for the most part, we were looking at what had been great migration cities. So we're looking at urban America, mostly these northern cities that um, experienced deindustrialization, that experienced white flight, that um, experienced uh, poor housing, that experienced uh, significant police disturbances and police abuse that then ultimately became riot cities in the 60s and 70s. So what I saw about these places is we're talking about um, 
a term that we use to talk to to describe other folks, and that is a level of disaffection in in that period of time. Uh, people not knowing what would be next for them when this wonder substance dropped into their communities. So okay. um, dropped. Now I gotta ask. <laughs> I gotta ask you. Like, Two questions. One is a more layered question, a bigger question, and one is specific. Like, what do we get wrong about the history of the crack era in, in yeah. your, you know, some of the things you dispel? But two, did the CIA drop crack in our communities? Hmm. <laughs> Man, why are you trying to get me, you know, Gary Webbed out here? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, Man, that Donovan um, was a good dude. We ain't seen right. <laughs> RIP Gary Webb. Um, <laughs> you know, um okay so wait the first part of your question before the cia thing take me back <laughs> oh what, what do we get what do we get wrong about the history of the cracker like a, just okay, a yes. question, things you explore but you some narrative yeah. well so uh things that i explore first people think that crack was some sort of special substance that it was more addictive and sort of more devastating to people um on a physical level than any other substance and that that's just not true um you know crack and powder cocaine are the same exact the the same exact substance uh chemically um that crack just happens to be because it is smoked something that goes directly to the brain which means that the high that people would get for for normally for powder cocaine is much more intense but it's shorter lived so at a result people binge a substance like crack um, where they need more and more and more. So that's how you see some of the behaviors that come out of crack use as it relates to something like powder cocaine, but it's the same exact substance. Um, still to this day, you know, we had a 100 to one sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Um, during the Obama administration, there was a big push to reform that and it was reduced to 18 to one. I like to think, though, the fact that there is still any disparity in the substance means that we haven't come far enough as it relates to our thinking about crack and the people who use crack. And that's a part of why I wrote this book um, is to, you know, for me, if we could eliminate that disparity entirely, then that would be a great step towards uh, repairing some of the harm um, that that we did during that period in, in the war on drugs. Um, I would also say that uh, that people do believe that um, that crack was something that kind of came out of nowhere or that it was specifically of a of, from a government plot to disrupt black America. And, and I looked seriously into that. You know, that was something that, uh, you know, as we sort of referenced Gary Webb of the Mercury News here in the Bay Area uh, tried to make an argument for. He said that that the CIA. Uh, was selling um, or, yeah, was selling crack uh, to uh, Los Angeles-based dealers like Freeway Ricky Ross, and ultimately then created the crack epidemic. And, um, you know, spoiler alert for anybody that's going to read the book, um, I did not find any evidence of a direct plot. But there is significant evidence that... Gary Webb committed suicide by shooting himself two times, though, allegedly. Yes, that is why I'm saying that I didn't find any evidence of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary Webb was found with uh, two bullet 
two two bullets in his head and they said it was a suicide. <laughs> and they said it was a suicide. Okay. <laughs> but you know, what is true um, uh, from his reporting is that, um, you know, throughout the 80s, um, uh, the price of cocaine failed. You had, you know, this is how we connect all these disparate pieces. You have folks like Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel who are just doing massive business, who are driving down the price of cocaine, who are able to use planes to drop these payloads off the coast within the United States. So then you have just a, a, a glut of cocaine coming into the country and the government not being focused on interrupting that trafficking, yep. that their focus was on dealing with users and dealers within the U.S., not stopping the actual flow of drugs in the country. So uh, and one of the things that is also true is that during that period, we were working with Contras um, rebels in Nicaragua to disrupt governments there, that Ronald Reagan could not get um, Congress to authorize funds to disrupt another country's um, uh, 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 government. So, uh, you know, we were overtly sending arms at first, you know, Ali North got caught doing that and um, and there were very light consequences for it. But what we also did is we allowed um, Contras to ship cocaine to the United States as a way of fundraising. So uh, that is well documented. It was well documented by the Kerry Commission. Um, it was well documented by uh, a investigation that Maxine Waters of California put on. Um, the CIA's official reporting on it and uh, the FBI and other um, three-letter agencies say that they just didn't know. Um, I'll tell you this, though. It was a lot of cocaine. So, so that they didn't know is um, is questionable. They, you know, uh, they they were uh, willfully, uh, yeah, they, willfully ignorant um, uh, to the fact that you know tons and tons of cocaine were coming into the United. States. Listen, and then when it comes to sort of like the 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 source of crack, crack's origins, um, you know, crack's original name was Freebase. Um, and it got that name for the chemical process by which the base of the cocaine substance is freed from its other components. So free base is a chemical term. Um, it's a term that chemists use for, for the actual process by which it was made. Um, I currently live in South LA. Um, there aren't a whole lot of chemists around. And typically people who have cocaine are not experimenting, doing research and development for better ways to um, to to uh, consume it. No, because they destroy it. They ain't nothing. <laughs> right. As a criminal defense lawyer, I can tell you ain't nothing more frowned upon than when somebody is cooking up the coke and it doesn't bounce back or bubble up right and you destroy right. it. Right, right, exactly. So, So however that came about, um, which I explore in the book. I'll, 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 I'll let you get that little history. You know, uh, y'all gonna have to pay for that. But, <laughs> but yeah, but there, you know, was a story there, right? And I think that uh, ultimately the truth is probably more sad than a conspiracy, which is that um, Black Americans, right? They're like the Black condition. The way that it was designed is for us to be the closest to harm. That's that's really what it means to be Black in this country. It's, it's not... Um, a race thing. It's really a a position thing. We are 
position closest to harm. So whenever there is something like a glut of cocaine in the country or a drug epidemic or, you know, awful policing, that we will be harmed first and worst by it. Um, and that's what you see with the crack epidemic is a lot of different harms coming together and having uh, a devastating impact on Black America. One of my last questions for you is, um, you know, we can't talk about the, the when crack was king in this time period. Um, without talking about the war on drugs and bad policymaking and Joe Biden, et cetera. But one of the things that also is coupled with that, and I just want to want you to talk about some of the highlights from the book, is a lot of those policies that we view as being outrageous today were supported by a lot of Black America during that time or some of the more stable organizations, the Black Church, the NAACP, yeah. the Black Caucus, et cetera. How do we explore that push and pull of the policymaking versus how we look at that time period today? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it is um, <clears throat> it's super complicated, right? Because I like to say that the the war on drugs is supposedly the only time uh, the federal government has listened to black people that, you know, when the argument is put forward about, you know, why do we get these policies? They say, hey, we were just listening to y'all's preachers. Um, you know, no, y'all weren't that uh, Black communities were suffering, right? There was uh, record violence. There was uh, rampant addiction that uh, people were really under siege. And I know because I grew up in one of those communities and what we wanted and were asking for was some type of intervention. Um, the policies that came about weren't our solutions, right? They were white facing solutions to black facing problems. Yeah. And um, there were though, I, I will say lots of folks, black community leaders who, who supported um, uh, lots of draconian policies. Uh, a piece of that is sort of like, there's like a class conversation to be had there. Folks who had, um, didn't want what they had in black communities being ruined, right? By like their neighbors who were um, unfortunate enough to get swept up in this epidemic. Um, generational too. Oh, also, you know, very, very generational. Then you also have this dynamic, which I explore in the book. One of the main characters is Kurt Schmoke, who's the uh, first elected Black mayor of Baltimore. And what you see is also a generation of Black leaders. Because um, again, most of these cities, right, these uh, former um Great migration cities that went through riots in the in the 60s and 70s, in the 80s and 90s, went on to elect black mayors. Um, that they were in this uh uh awful position, right, of having to prove often as Democrats that they were tough on crime, as black folks that they weren't going to go easy on black folks in crime. Uh, many of them kind of cut their teeth as prosecutors, and um, you know, and that was their way into politics and sort of having a uh, a way of being respected by uh, by like a plurality of the uh, uh, electorate. And we see that right with somebody like Kamala Harris, who has to, you know, even today kind of still answer for, you know, a lot of what her early work was. But that really was a path for black folks into politics at the time. Um, so that's how we got um, uh, sort of large black support for some response to the crack epidemic. And that's how we got sort of drug warriors that were black at the time. I will say though, 
that for something, for example, like the 1994 crime bill, you have really loud vocal opposition to it from the Congressional Black Caucus. You have someone like John Lewis really holding up that legislation um, because he didn't like the way that it handled the death penalty. He had always been um, uh, anti-death penalty because of its because of the history of lynching in the South. Um, he didn't think it was something that the government should be associated with, and uh, you know he was ultimately convinced to vote for it um, because it was the first big piece of legislation from a new Democratic president. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in Bill Clinton, um, you had folks like uh, Jesse Jackson and, and the Rainbow Coalition um, uh, trying before Clinton's election to put up uh, uh, a fight to yet another crime bill uh, because they were already seeing back then the devastation that was happening. So, um, you know, that's a lot. Most people think that was the first crime bill, but it wasn't. Oh, no, it wasn't. And, and, you know, and and like, you you know, you kind of mentioned Joe Biden earlier that, uh, you know, Biden would be the first to tell you that his name was on so many crime bills, you know, as far back as 84, you know, under Reagan, that that was one of the ways that he was uh, distinguishing himself from other Democrats was to be able to say, well, I'm a Democrat that can be tough on crime. Um, And it's something that, you know, I think that we can parse out who was responsible. um, And that could go on for, you know, years and years. But what I do think we have now is an opportunity to say, look, we know it was terrible. Um, It didn't work. There was a lot of fear in the country and a lot of bad politics and bad policymaking. Um, And we do now have a responsibility to reverse some of that stuff, to like reverse, right, that uh, 18 to 1 disparity, to to completely eliminate mandatory minimums and to give um, uh, discretion back to judges when it comes to how they sentence people, that uh, all this stuff we need to also make retroactive, right? So we can free people who are still holed up in jails and that those policies will hopefully um, spread from what's happening on the federal government level to the states, because the states usually follow the federal government, that uh, that we need to repair the harm. Um, Has Joe, two questions for you. Has Joe Biden done enough to fix the damage that he helped cause? And then second, just a large question to kind of put a pin on 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 this on this amazing book that you've written. What do we owe the survivors of the crack era? Yeah, uh, Joe Biden hasn't done nearly enough. I think that um, that that he's made gestures and speeches towards uh, regretting um, a lot of the choices made or at least regretting the way that it sort of spurred mass incarceration in this country. But like I said, you know, that that crack is still treated differently, um, you know, by the federal government than than powder cocaine is. So if we've learned all these lessons and if we're so sorry, then why is it that we can't get a one to one uh, uh, sentencing for those two substances? And it really is because political will hasn't moved far enough to say these are the same things and that we don't want to treat the people associated with this substance differently from the people that we associate with the other substance. Um, And again, you know that there's so much that could be done as it relates to eliminating um, uh, uh, mandatory minimums in this country and the way that laws like that keep people incarcerated and keep our system uh, much, much larger than it should be. Um, aside from that, you know, if if I could see anything from this book, I would love to see 
um, I would love to see a public healthcare system that accounts for the things that uh, accounts for the things that make people turn to substances like crack, right? Like mental health services that can keep people from needing an illicit, addictive substance to feel good. You mean like a right? public education system that provides a safety net? I mean, wouldn't that be something, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and then, you know, also service to actually services to actually be able to disrupt people's addictions, right? Like people, you know, get to points when they want to be able to quit and, and, and there should be um, uh, systems in place that, that help them with that. I'll share just a brief story, which is, you know, when I first started this book, I was living in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. And, and I saw uh, opioids come into my neighborhood, which was still a mostly Black and Latino neighborhood. And there was a day where there was a man who was just completely, I mean, he was, he was leaning on the sidewalk for about 30 minutes. And I realized, even having written this book, even having reported so long on the criminal justice system, that there was nobody that I could call besides the cops, right? Like I called 311. And I was like, hey, there's a guy who's out here. He's clearly high. He needs some help. And they said, well, I mean, we can call the police for you, <laughs> you know, and that's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, why is it that we have invested? I mean, well, we know why, but it's it's ridiculous, right, that we have invested and continue to invest so much into law enforcement when law enforcement shouldn't be the, 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 the solution to everything. It can't be. Yeah. Um, and and especially when it comes to something as as sensitive and as complicated as addiction. So I would love to see services that actually can help people dealing with addiction. And we need them more now than ever, um, you know, because you have uh, this this enormous rise in overdose deaths related to substances like fentanyl that, uh, you know, opioids for a long time had been something that. Um, white America, rural America have been dealing with first in the form of prescription pill. pill. See, now my Ohio accent is coming back. Um, I'm talking about rural America, so I'm saying prescription pills um, <laughs> and something like, you know, prescription pills and then in uh, the form of heroin. And now we see synthetic drugs like fentanyl that are just taking people completely out. So I hope now that, you know, the population of folks that we're looking at is, is much more diverse in that there are more white folks involved, that, that we'll see a real rethinking of both our law enforcement um, and criminal justice system, but also our, you know, healthcare system, and that we can get serious about um, treatment and also uh, harm reduction. It's amazing that we have to hope that the skin color of the victims change so that we can alleviate our harm. You know, what did what did Derek Bell call it? Um, interest convergence. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Donovan, you're brilliant. I, you know, you are now the foremost expert on crack cocaine in the country. <laughs> I don't know if you'd ever expected to be that as you uh, matriculated through Morehouse College, but you're a hell, of a, <laughs> a hell of a book. How can people buy the book? And when is it due? When is it out? All those things. Thank you for that. Yeah, the the book is available everywhere books are sold. Um, I would suggest buying it uh, through your local independent black bookstore. 
Uh, but, you know, but it's also on Amazon and um, you can follow me at uh, Donovan X Ramsey across all socials. Definitely. I love you, brother. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. I love you, too. Take care.